Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And she also sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Leg- Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows. And to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, we have a great show tonight. You know, we have talked about many different types of privacy, whether it was surveillance privacy or information privacy, financial privacy, healthcare privacy. This is similar, but in a way very different because we're going to talk about patient-directed dying. Now, the truth of the matter is everybody you know is going to die sometime. I mean, none of us are going to get out of here alive. That's that's the truth of it. And it's just a matter of we don't know necessarily when it's going to happen, but it will. And there are times in our lives where we experience uh, some terrible things that could happen to us that we may want to die maybe in a way that we have the opportunity to have some control over it. There are many times we don't. If we're in a car accident, we can't. But if you have a serious disease that you're terminally ill, should you have that private right to die? And I think that is a privacy right. Coming into this world should be privacy, and there should be, when you leave this world, you should have some privacy right, the right to control how you die and die with dignity. So tonight we are interviewing the author of Patient-Directed Dying, Thomas A. Preston is a medical doctor. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and he was a professor of medicine, cardiology, at the University of Washington for 20 years. He's the author of numerous medical articles, and many of his articles have appeared in in various magazines, including the Atlantic Monthly, the Washington Post, the New York Times, etc., His appearances on national television programs include Good Morning America, 60 Minutes, and many more shows. He was a plaintiff in the lawsuit Washington v. Glucksburg, U.S. Supreme Court, 1997. His book Patient-Directed Dying 
is his fourth book. In this fascinating and really compelling book, Dr. Preston gives many reasons, important reasons, why aid in dying is not suicide when used by terminally ill patients and why physicians who help them die are not assisting suicide. He shows how many outdated cultural attitudes impede understanding of how we die and why many physicians withdraw from their dying patients and how the sanctity of life principle has become distorted with our technology to obstruct the aid in dying. So his book, Patient-Directed Dying, is really a manifesto calling for mercy and reason. And you can learn more about this after we talk to him at TomPrestonMD.com. And we're so thrilled that you joined us tonight, Tom. Oh, happy to be here. Tom, what was the impetus in writing this book? Well, uh, as, as you noted, I am a physician. And uh, throughout my career, I uh, got uh, more and more bothered by seeing suffering at end of life. Now, I don't want to uh, let people know how old I am. Well, I'm in my 70s, I'll say that. So <laughs> when I was in a medical student, it was 50 years ago. And back then, people died relatively quickly. I won't say it just uh, fell over or anything like that. But we didn't have the means of helping them stay alive. There's an old saying in medicine that pneumonia is the old man's friend. could be the old woman's the friend, too, of course. But what that means is that if someone, for instance, got lung cancer, uh, the first time they got pneumonia, that would take them out. And right. that's the end of it. And whereas today, they might actually live a few more years, which is good. But towards the end, they're going to have a lot of problems. It's, it adds up to extended suffering. So I, I started seeing that and being bothered by it. I'd see people in intensive care units kept alive long after uh, there was any hope for uh, full recovery or curing them of their disease. And there was a lot of suffering. And what bothered me most was I realized that, that I and my colleagues were responsible for this, uh, along with society, of course, the law and teaching and everything else. But we were, were the agents of medicine, and, and we were doing it, and that's what bothered me. Right. So let's explain to our audience what exactly is patient-directed dying. Well, patient-directed dying is, is a term that I use uh, instead of other terms that can be used for the same thing, like death with dignity or hasten dying. And essentially, it, it has legal connotations, uh, which uh, mean, uh, and social and medical connotations as well, which, and, and for this expression, we mean uh, somebody uh, taking steps to end their life before it would end if the doctors kept doing everything possible, and with the requirement that the patient has to be terminally ill. And by, by terminally ill, we mean in best medical judgment, less than six months to live with a condition that is terminal uh, without any cure. All curative therapy has to have been spent or uh, uh, done as, as well as possible with no more hope. 
for curative therapy. So this is a person who's going to have to die, and patient-directed dying is uh, saying the patient will make the choice, him or herself, and direct uh, the process of dying. And this is legal in only one state in the country so far, that's Oregon, and it's done by getting a prescription for lethal medications, which the patient then takes. So it's physician-enabled, patient-directed dying. Now, what if the patient is um, incapable, wants it, and can tell you that, but is incapable of it doing it themselves? Yes, this is uh, uh, a very difficult situation and, and a good, good question, to be sure. Uh, what you'll find, I hope, as we keep talking about all this, is that this issue has evolved socially and, and legally and medically, and there are those who feel that anybody who wants to die, who is terminally ill, uh, should have the right to just, say, have a doctor inject them, and, and that's the end of it. And for a lot of reasons, all of which I fully agree, um, we don't want someone else being able to do that. That is to say, the greatest uh, safeguard we have against abuse of this is if the patient herself has to take the medicines. Now, if you, if you say anything other than that, that, oh, the family could do it or the doctor could do it or goodness knows who would do it, uh, I won't suggest a lawyer. Although I have to tell you uh, that I have an identical twin brother who's a lawyer, so I'm not telling <laughs> lawyer jokes here. At any rate... Plus you're talking to one. Yeah, oh, I, well, that's why I made the comment. Uh, but as soon as you say someone else can do it, then it opens up the possibility of abuse, of it being done against the wish, the voluntary desire of the patient herself. So that's a, that's a huge requirement. Um, now, it's true, and behind your question is the fact that there are a lot of people who are suffering greatly, who are maybe terminally ill, uh, but say they're, they're paralyzed and they can't take pills and put them in their mouth and right. then swallow them with water. Sure. And so they can't do it themselves. Uh, and why would we discriminate against those people? And in fact, there are some who say that we, we would discriminate against people because they can't self-administer the medication. Uh, and, and this is a hard issue, I can, I can tell you. Uh, right, right. Within the, the movement, we've debated this a long time. But what it comes down to is uh, it's a legal safeguard, legal, medical, cultural, social safeguard. Right, so that no one does it and uses it and abuses it and say, oh, they wanted me to, to uh, get rid of them. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I remember when uh, my mother had a stroke, and um, she was out to lunch with her friends, and she was older, but she was on dialysis, but, and she had a stroke, and she went into the hospital, and uh, she started to do better, and then she had another stroke. And at this point in time, she couldn't talk. And the doctors said, well, maybe we shouldn't do dialysis anymore. And I didn't want to be the one to make that decision. 
Right. So I remember asking my mother, what do you want to do? And she could go yes or no with her head. Right. So when I asked her mom, do you want me to continue the dialysis, she shrugged her shoulders, <laughs> which was like the worst thing you could do because it's like, I don't know. Yes. It, was, it was like I said, I'm begging you to tell me and, because I don't want to make any decisions for you. And my sister was with me at the time. So um, that night, my mother had, couldn't swallow, you know, so she pulled out her feeding tube that they had put into her during this time. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, so I was frantic when they called me, and they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I've got to put it back in. I have to put it back in. They said, well, you know, she has to go through another surgery, and that's very painful, and all this. You can't just, like, screw it back in. You have to do this. So I called my sister, and we made the decision uh, not to put it back in at that point and then I went back to see her the next day and and um, I said mom you know what do you want to do do you want me to start the dialysis again or you know and she just looked at me so we at that point allowed her to just have no food or drink and it took her about 10 days to die till we all said goodbye to her and it was a very very challenging time for us but I felt like when she pulled out that feeding tube, Dr. Preston, that she was telling me what she wanted. Well, yes, I, I would say so. Uh, we always want to be as sure as we can, and I can really uh, relate to the difficulty you and your sister had. But, but this story uh, makes a very important point, which is it's so helpful if physicians and other family members know in advance what a patient's desires are. Because when people are dying, you say, well, maybe she doesn't, she can't think straight or she's ambivalent, etc." But if someone has a good living will and, and advanced directives that make it, they don't want to uh, prolong things uh, if they get into a certain situation, then, then, then it's easier because right. you know that consistent with the values and the prior desires of that person. Well, ironically, um, my sister went on a vacation to Florida and got a spider bite and got um, septicemia. (laughs) And what happened to her was she went into this coma and I remember her when we went through this with my mother. She said, I never want to be like that. I never want to be in a vegetative state. So we ended up with my sister, you know, maybe 10 years later, just, I think it was about 10 years, yeah, that here I was again having to be in this situation with my uh, sister's family. And I said, I know my sister does not want to live like this because the doctors were saying there's no hope, there's no hope. Everything went, you know, she was yellow, you know, the septicemia just went on crazy with her. And uh, they were unable to do anything. We tried for a long time to to rehabilitate her because she was very healthy when she went in. But we couldn't. And so finally we we said, all right, you know, we're just going to take off the ventilator, which she had a a ventilator in. And... um, and it took her a couple of days to die, even without the ventilator. Right. So um, 
it was a it was again but i knew how she felt because we had just gone through this uh, you know several years before with my mother she said i never want to be living like that i never want to be in that state so that's uh but it wasn't quite the same thing as her making that affirmative act do you know what i mean right i, I do yeah and those um, are the, you never know what kind of situation you're going to be in yeah yeah and if you can have it clear with your loved ones in advance and and i'm uh talking about people in their 40s 50s talking to their family their friends and and you you don't have to make it morbid you can say oh by the way um know everybody has ought to have a will just in case they die accidentally or something what to do with the, the the money or the house or this or that similarly for what if they should die unexpectedly and children will uh, accept that uh, but if they hear it especially more than once and it's also in written form it helps a lot yes it's very important to be in writing and and I have told my husband, you know, now that I've gone through this with two very close family members, you know, I've made it very clear that I don't want to live in a vegetative state. I want to move on to the next level, if there is a next level, which, right. you know. Right. I, I really enjoyed the stories that you told, and I thought maybe you could share the one story that just broke my heart where the dad, father, really was suffering and he really did want to direct his undying and his one child daughter wouldn't allow why don't you tell us a little bit about that story well this was a extremely likable man of course that makes it harder it shouldn't we should treat everybody exactly the same but you can't help but feeling a little more closely close to someone who's uh, such a, a fine person and uh he made it very clear to his wife, to me, and uh, the hospice workers, actually, that he did not want to uh, just linger for a long time. And uh, he, he had a condition where, in fact, it was very difficult for him to move his arms. He had some minor control of his hands. Uh, but he decided that uh, he, it was time to die. And he, he told his family, and uh, that was all right. Uh, and he talked to me. I, I uh, see people and advise them on uh, medical matters at the end of life and told him that the, the one way that he could do it would be to just stop eating. Now, people who are dying of cancer uh, invariably, at the end, we'll stop eating. Sometimes the family tries to force feed them, or, come on, Dad, you've got to eat. Right, you don't eat, right. you'll die, et cetera, right. et cetera. And here, poor guy's dying. We, we refer to it as the food fights within the family. Mm. At any rate, uh, we talked about it a lot, and, and this man said that's what he wanted to do. Meanwhile, uh, there were uh, several siblings, uh, I'm sorry, children, Mm-hmm. And uh, they all gathered, and and uh, all but one were very supportive. And the other one, for, uh, I have to say, religious reasons, didn't uh, want him to die any sooner than absolutely necessary, wanted to keep feeding him. And uh, th- there, was, there was a conflict there within the family, but... Uh, 
and, and the one daughter accused others of wanting to kill the father, etc. Uh, but uh, she finally relented uh, because he just said that's what he wanted to do. And uh, he had lost quite a bit of weight over the previous year, and uh, the time came when he stopped eating, and two, three days went by, and he uh, was still the same. And uh, I don't want to get too medical here, but uh, in fact, there, there are ways of telling whether somebody is getting fluids in particular. Uh, you, you just measure the urine. And I started getting suspicious and uh, because the output was quite normal. So how can this be if he's not taking anything? And uh, there were other circumstances. He was getting some medicines to uh, help him sleep and relieve uh, thirst and hunger, which I thought he would have. And uh, so uh, we finally figured out that the one uh, child, the one uh, yeah, child, offspring, who uh, was opposed to this was in fact staying there through the night with him and feeding him water or fluids of, of all sorts. So we had to change that uh, and I'm I'm not doing this story justice because there there was a lot of oh right uh, no you did great justice in the in the book because it really wrenched my heart out yeah, when I was it, reading it how you know here she was going to help out and everybody thought that was great that she was going to help out and then what is she doing you know being a passive aggressive and doing what she wanted to do and keeping her dad alive and well yeah yeah it and, was and it was I thought it was a very selfish mode well it it was in, in my opinion it was. One thing we have to remember is that uh, no man is an island, so to speak. When somebody dies, a lot of other people lose part of their life as well. Right. If your father or mother die, you've lost something. And so uh, children, even if they're in their 50s or 60s, will not want their parents to die, even, even if the, that parent is suffering. Uh, often they won't. Until they come to grips through the grieving process that this is what's better for dad, etc. And to understand that it's a selfish desire to keep them alive, even though that prolongs the suffering. At any rate, uh, then it was only, I think, two days or so until the man did succumb. But he suffered a lot longer than he should have. He did, yeah. It went on ten days or so longer than it should have. But uh, these, these are the problems that we face at, at end of life. I remember when the doctor spoke to me when I was like doing everything heroically possible to keep my mom alive. And finally, one of the doctors said to me, he said, you know, you're getting to the point of almost torturing her. And uh. when he said that, I jumped back and I thought, who am I doing this for? Am I doing this for her or am I doing this for me? And I, I didn't want to ever think that I would be torturing my mom I it, it was it's, it's a very difficult decision it is uh, it is not easy to do for someone that you love and that's why what you said about when the patient himself or herself is clear and can tell you that's the best way to do it I have a question here you, Lloyd is saying I have to reintroduce you because if somebody's driving by they may not know who I'm talking to so we are speaking with Tom Preston a medical doctor who has written the book called Patient Directed Dying. And on our show, talking about privacy, one of the most private matters of your life should be the right to die and how 
you can control the right to die if possible. And that's what we're talking about. Um, Dr. Preston, I've heard doctors say that helping patients die is, is not a part of medical practice. What do you think about that? Well, uh, I, I think that they are mistaken. What, what they mean is that, hey, we, we aren't killing people. We aren't, uh, it's not our job to uh, help them die. Our job is to keep them alive, and then they die on their own. And, and what's behind this is a great uh, desire of physicians not to be associated with death. This goes all the way back to the time of Hippocrates, when one of Hippocrates' statements, not in the famous oath, was, do not attend to your patient who is overmastered by his disease. In other words, once that patient is dying, get out of there because you'll be associated with them dying. Now, back in those days, that was a serious problem. Uh, today, I don't think doctors are blamed when their patients die, especially if they've done everything uh, much more than they should even. Uh, but there is this desire of physicians to want to back off and say, oh no, I didn't have anything to do. I didn't shorten that life by one minute or one heartbeat. When in fact, uh, I say that that statement is in, incorrect uh, when physicians say we don't help people die, because they do all the time. Uh, the, the fact is, that some 80% or more of patients today die uh, after a lot of medical decisions. And almost all of us who die, except suddenly uh, from trauma or a sudden stroke or heart attack, and most of them we can keep people alive for some time, with the exception of sudden, unexpected death, everybody, in fact, has their life prolonged. Right. And when we do that, we change their condition. We put them into uh, a new sort of condition that was unknown when I was a medical student, even. Think of somebody who's in an ICU, intensive care unit, maybe on dialysis, maybe on a ventilator. These things were just coming into use when I was a, a medical student. And these are new situations, new conditions of living, and we put people in them. So, as you said earlier in, in one of your accounts, uh, once you get to that point, it's very hard to let the person die. But think of somebody who has had a lot of medical treatment in an intensive care unit. We have to make decisions as to how they die, and, and most people do die after decisions by the family or the doctor. And by the way, I like to tell people, well, do you want this decision to be based on your values, your judgments and desires, or what the intern thinks in the middle of the night? Uh, think about that one for a while, because right. their decisions will be made. So we do help people die. And in fact, not just by putting them in new conditions, but also by our treatments. Right. Think about what is commonly called a morphine drip. Uh, when people are dying and suffering greatly, doctors will give morphine or similar medicines, including sleeping pills or injections, to try to get rid of the, the suffering, pain and suffering. And I'm all for this. It's called comfort care. Uh, if you do this uh, more aggressively, uh, then they die earlier. 
and this happens all the time. I can I can guarantee you that in every major hospital in this country, right now, as we are speaking and listening, there are people dying on morphine drips. Uh, do they die earlier than otherwise? Well, maybe we we never know for sure. Some do. Is is that wrong? Absolutely not. Uh, every physician does it. In fact, uh, there's uh, a procedure called palliative sedation, where even if morphine isn't working, and sometimes it doesn't, people will uh, get a lot of morphine, they'll become sedated and sleep, and then they'll wake up uh, writhing and screaming, and then they get another, and this back and forth, in and out of consciousness and pain, Mm -hmm. nobody likes. So if it's an extreme condition, uh, you put them to sleep with anesthesia uh, until they die. And, and stop all other feeding, no fluids, etc. Well, this is <laughs> this is physicians helping people die. So dying is a part of medical practice. In fact, to me, it would be unethical to say, "Well, we're going to keep you alive as long as we want to, and then forget it. You're going to die on your own. See you around." That's not it. We we physicians do get caught between two great moral imperatives. One, to prolong life, and the other, to reduce suffering. And at the end of life, these these uh, duties conflict. Exactly. You can see that intuitively. Uh, if we keep someone long as life as we can, we prolong suffering. We artificially induce suffering. And most physicians are quite willing to uh, cut back and, and help people die. They just don't want to call it that. That's right. The last thing they want to do is to say that they're helping somebody die. Well, Lloyd wants to know what you think of Dr. Kerbokian. Well, uh, he, uh, what I liked about him is that he called attention to the whole issue. Uh, what I didn't like about him uh, at all is that he wanted to be his own supreme doctor writing all the medical rules. He wanted to be his own judge writing the laws. He wanted to do it just in his way. And most of us who like to feel responsible about this uh, say, no, we have to do this within society. We have to do it within the law. We want to pass laws. We don't like the strictures of the laws right now. But uh, you know, Kevorkian uh, helped a lot of people who weren't dying, and th- we talked about that situation, and that's a tricky one and a difficult one, but I and most people in this movement feel that we have to draw the line. Uh, we have to say we that society will accept only so much, and as soon as we start surreptitiously helping people die who, who aren't otherwise dying, then we're going to do it wrong. You can't uh, depend on everybody to do the right thing uh, all the time. You know, so you, I, yeah, I it's like it's like the Nazis when they began killing with euthanasia. You know, and, yeah. And some say that uh, you know, physician aid in dying is the same thing and uh, won't lead to the widespread killing of quote unwanted persons. Right. Well, we have to remember that the Nazis. 
uh, never practiced euthanasia, either by the definition or even by uh, the meaning of the term then. It was murder. (laughs) Yeah, they killed people. That's it, plain and simple. And I'll tell you, Goebbels, he was the the information minister. I may mispronounce his name. But he must be laughing in his grave for all these years that people were suckered into calling it euthanasia because that gave it some... uh, modicum of, uh, of uh, acceptability, social acceptability, to call it euthanasia. And there was a eugenics movement that was fairly prominent in this country and Europe at that time. But let me tell you, just to talk about this Nazi business, not for too long, but if you think of countries that really suffered under the Nazis, it's hard to come up with one that, that suffered more than Holland. And guess what? The Hollanders who have legal uh, aid in dying or patient-directed dying now, call it euthanasia. Mm. They're, they're not turned off by this term. The opponents of patient-directed dying or aid in dying in this country will call it euthanasia on purpose to give it that smear association with the Nazis. But uh, let me make one definition here. Euthanasia is when somebody else injects the lethal medicine or agent uh, and so, under the Oregon law, or laws being uh, considered in all other states, euthanasia is out. And it is with me, too. I, I'm totally against euthanasia because that's where it could conceivably spread to just say, oh, well, we'll take out this group or that group. Right, right. So, tell us what the Oregon law says. Can you give us, I know you have it in your book, could you kind of just give us the outline of it? What sure, it is? yeah. The law uh, says that if someone is terminally ill, that's by best medical judgment, less than six months to live, and they make a series of voluntary requests, first uh, orally uh, spoken, and then two written requests, have to be 15 days apart. And that's so that it's a well-considered thing. And that bothers some people because what if somebody is dying grievously and and they didn't have enough time to think all this through? Well, and this is sort of a compromise. Again, it's to prevent abuses. Uh, When people first get a bad diagnosis, let's say somebody goes to the doctor and the doctor says I'm sorry to tell you this but you've got cancer and you have less than six months to live well that can make people frantic and believe me I've tried to study this business there's no way to really say that nicely or smoothly or comfortingly there just isn't and people will get into a kill me or cure me mode and they'll suddenly I don't want to go through all that. I want to die right now. And and that's that's a reaction formation, the psychologists call it. And we want to get past that to a well-considered decision consistent with somebody's lifetime ideals and values uh, so that it's not just initial depression that pushes them to do this. Right. And they have to be over 18. They have to be over 18. They have to live in Oregon any other state that wants such a law would have a residency requirement. They have to uh, ask their family physician uh, for the medicine, 
the family physician is willing to do it, he first has to go get a second opinion uh, from another physician who certifies that the patient is in, incurably uh, ill and dying, and these other things we've talked about are in place, that the patient is getting good comfort care or palliative care. We don't want people doing this just because nobody is medically paying attention to them. That's why uh, it, it, it can't be written into the, wall, into the law. It shouldn't be, written, I think, that they need to get in the hospice, but I would say anybody should get in the hospice because that's the best way to be sure of getting excellent palliative or comfort care. So all these things have to be in place. If there's a question of psychiatric illness, uh, a medical depression, not just sadness because they're dying, then there must be a uh, mental health referral consultation. And you know, I, think I think a lot of people may not even know what hospice is. You know, we're sitting here on the campus at the University of California, Irvine, and our society really doesn't talk about death. Death is hidden, you know? Well, right. And so um, my first encounter with, with hospice was with my mother, which we had wonderful hospice care, and they explained to me all the stages of dying and what to watch for, and they were there to help me and, and walk me through everything. And I was, I was so very impressed with the hospice care. So can you explain a little bit more about what that is for people who are not familiar with it? Sure. Uh, I don't want to sound like too much of a fan. I don't own stock in any hospice. <laughs> I don't either, but I did think or, it was great. <laughs> or this or that. But essentially, these, these are organizations uh, who have a bunch of professionals of all sorts, social workers, uh, spiritual counselors even, physicians, and particularly nurses who are trained in end-of-life care and comfort care. And the philosophy of hospice is uh, to stop attempts at curative care, which in fact, at, when it really gets to the point where there's no more, more good curative care left, further attempts only make things worse and uh, induce more suffering. And the whole emphasis shifts to making the remainder of life as pleasant and comfortable as possible. And just a short aside, one study showed that if you, I don't know how many hundred people they took who were dying of cancer, and they divided them into two groups, one group that tried for everything and the other group that said, all right, we're going to stop all this, we're going to step back and maximize the end of life, make it as comfortable as possible. And guess what? That second group even lived longer wow. than the first group. I suspect, well, I know it was because some of the people in the first group went for operations or this or that that, that ended their lives earlier than had to. At any rate, so uh, Medicare uh, pays for hospice. Most hospice is at home not in, a, in an institution. Which is even better. Even I think better. that was better yeah. for yeah, us whole, because it's much more comfortable for the patient to be in a, in a surroundings that they recognize, to feel the warmth of the home and family coming by instead of right. having to stand there in a hospital. I mean, what a vast difference from when my mother died in hospice versus when my sister died in a hospital in Florida. You know, it was just yeah. a terrible situation. Yeah, yeah. So, no, you're absolutely right. It's so much better. 
We're speaking with Dr. Tom Preston, a, who was a professor of medicine at the University of Washington for more than 20 years. He has appeared on numerous national television programs, and his articles in medicine have, uh, on, about medicine have appeared in the Atlantic Monthly and the New York Times. He lives in the state of Washington, and his book called Patient-Directed Dying is a call for legalized aid in dying for the terminally ill. It's really, in my view, a real death with dignity um, approach, and, and I honor that so much because I think that's the whole issue is when we want to have some privacy to die, we should have the dignity of being able to have that private decision of our own. So, uh, Dr. Preston, um, what about HMOs or insurance companies? Um, what is their stand on it, by the way? Have they uh, come out in favor of this? Because it costs, it cut costs for them. Well, uh, interesting. There, there are various ways of looking at this. Uh, but one charge uh, allegation is that if there were such a law as now exists in Oregon, that HMOs or Medicare or insurance companies would want to encourage people to die under such a law so as to cut costs. Well, no, it's it's easy to think that. And if I didn't know much about this, I would naturally think, aha, of course, that's what these guys would want to do. That's the way our minds work, and not without good reason, I must say. Right. But when you, when you stop to look at it, it's absolutely the opposite. First, there, there was a study done, one of these technical studies that you read in professional journals, done by an arch opponent of patient-directed dying and a great, well-known supporter. They collaborated, which is great, I think. You don't get that too often. Right. And they found that the savings to a uh, an HMO or a Blue Cross insurance company, Aetna, one of those, is so negligible as to be nil, nothing. Huh. And I, I won't even try to go into all the technicalities of this. So that's, that's on a broad scale, theoretical, because, of course, they didn't line up 100 people and do one one way and one group the next. But secondly, if you start thinking it through, ask yourself, well, wouldn't an HMO just love to uh, get out from under this very expensive end-of-life care. And everybody knows that end-of-life care in hospitals is expensive, not so expensive in hospices, by the way. Right. Well, what, how's the HMO going to do this? Uh, just have a uh, regulation? All doctors shall uh, uh, coerce their patients into doing it? No, no, no. Obviously, you can't do that. They have to be a little bit more subtle. So how could they do it? Uh, have continuing education courses for their doctors talking about this hey you know we're not that dumb even i would rebel against that and uh, 30 35 percent of physicians are are strongly against aid and dying at end of life primarily for religious reasons and i would support them all the way in saying what are you guys doing and, and if it comes down to it, if anybody knowledgeable in medicine tries to think through how could an HMO or an insurance company put into effect a policy to use it, I'm sorry to use the word ain't, but there ain't no way it could happen. It just can't.
chance happen. In fact, what if they even succeeded in one case? Well, if it was really against the will of the patient uh, and somebody was, let's say somebody was dying and, and they somehow manipulated the family or the doctor to do it, other people are going to find out. There's nurses, there's doctors, there's social workers, there are other family members. Somebody will find out. And then what happens to that HMO? See you in bankruptcy court. Right. That, that's what happens. So, no, these guys are so afraid of even saying anything about it. When oh, so they, they, they don't even say a word. They haven't taken a stand at all, huh? That's right. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Speaking about court, what was this case, Washington versus Glucksburg? Well, in 1991, uh, some of us who felt that the, the present law that's in most states, including the state of Washington, where I am, which makes assisting a suicide a, a criminal act, uh, was unconstitutional. Now, remind me to talk about suicide, because I don't think it's suicide, and I'll tell you why. But nevertheless, uh, we said that if somebody is dying, uh, they have a privacy right to die the way they want to, and that this, you know, suicide is not illegal. And what these laws do is criminalize the act of writing a prescription by a physician. So mm -hmm. it's making criminals out of physicians who would otherwise want to help their patients die. And of interest, we won. We, we did this in federal court, and we won uh, on the district level. It went to the circuit court, Ninth Circuit Court, West Coast. We won there. went to the Supreme Court, where we lost. Uh, but, but very interesting. And in the Supreme Court, uh, the court said, uh, this, is, this is something that's up to the states. Uh, if a state wants to have such a law, they may, if they want to pass a law that will uh, decriminalize the act for a physician, given all the safeguards that I've already talked about, then they may do that. And that's exactly what Oregon did. Uh-huh. So Oregon right now still is the only state that allows patient-directed dying? That's correct. So there are what other, other states are, are considering this? I know California was considering this for a while. I don't know what has happened with California. California was considering it, and they went through the legislature, and guess what? Special interest groups could always torpedo something like this. The, the majority of Californians wanted this law by all the polls. Even, we think, probably the majority of legislators would have voted for it. But uh, certain lobbies uh, can convince legislatures that that they'd lose 20% of their uh their uh, voters, if if they voted for such a law. Now, is it religious? Is it is the religious lobbyists or who is it? Well, it's primarily religious lobbyists and also of interest uh, the medical associations. Now, may I say a word about that? Yeah, is the AMA against it? Yes, they are, and they are one of the leading uh, opponents in the law in the court case that I was involved in and with all attempts on the state level, uh, adamantly against it, saying that the medical profession is totally against this and it's against the ethic of medicine. But guess what? 
the majority of their physicians support it. So you ask, well, how does this happen then? Well, these are edicts that are made by the administration, by the executive committees, by uh, the hierarchy of the medical association. Same thing happens on the state level. In Washington State, for instance, and in California, the majority or a solid plurality of physicians favor some means of helping people die who are, who are otherwise dying. And so yes, are they doing it, but they're not talking about it? I mean, are they doing it in a way that's helpful, but not talking about it? Or Oh, well, that's every question you ask <laughs> brings up a lot of <laughs> interesting subjects. Uh, most, if you look at polls that have been conducted in several, if not many, states, it comes out about like this, 55 to 60 percent favor some sort of uh, ability for uh, patients to terminate their lives uh, before going to the end, if they are dying, etc. Now, if you then say to these, pa- these physicians, well, if, if there were such a law in your state as in Oregon, would you participate? Then it drops to about 30 percent, 35 percent. You might ask, well, why is this? And that is, these guys don't want to get involved. I'm sorry, but they're, well, I won't say it. Uh, Physicians are afraid of public opinion. They're afraid of their medical associations, hospital. Malpractice. uh, Yeah, malpractice. They, if anything you say about uh, helping somebody die, they will still steer so far away from it. I know physicians, let me tell you this, I know physicians who actually euthanize some of their patients in the hospital, uh-huh, which uh-huh. I really object to, Right. who would vote against a law just allowing self-administration by the dying patient. Uh. Why is this? Because, well, some of them are just anti-law or lawyers, I guess, but they don't want any legal or administrative uh, edicts about how they practice medicine. This goes... Okay, so they don't want to have patient have control. They want to have the control. Right. Or, yeah, I would modify that by saying they don't want anybody else to have control over them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they're willing to step back, but only if they are in no way associated with it. There was one other question asked in a couple of polls, and that was of these same physicians if you were terminally ill and dying, would you want this option available for yourself? Of course. 72% <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this is the inverse of the golden rule. It, it's doctors <laughs> saying, uh, I will not do unto others what I want done for me. Well, you know, I, I was married to a doctor for 18 years and put him through medical school, and, and I and I know a lot of doctors for years, and... They just happen to think sometimes that they they know better. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a lot in common with lawyers, and that's yeah, exactly, right. exactly. So we're from <laughs> the same profession. I wanted to get back to what is the difference between assisted suicide and patient-directed dying? Because you wanted to talk about the difference between yeah, suicide. Yeah. yeah. Well, the term suicide. We are uh, we who who are proponents and advocates of assisted dying. We're stuck with a bad term. And everybody knows what suicide is, and the public uh, has, I think, correctly a a negative view of it. Uh, Nobody really likes it. It's not illegal, as I mentioned before. Uh, 
But when you look at suicide, the reason most of us don't like it is suicide is self-dying of someone who doesn't have to die, whose dying process is not already in place, and for whom there is, if not a cure, at least uh, good treatment and therapy so the person can work with the problem. Uh, now, if you think of all the people, I think of people I know who committed suicide, uh, a lot of them were depressed, they didn't get proper medical treatment. These are younger people, mostly the ones I know and thinking of. Uh, I, I don't know anybody who got jilted and died after that or lost his fortune on the stock market and jumped out a window as in 1933. Uh, but mo people who have uh, who, who commit ordinary suicide, that's called ordinary suicide, uh, there are good treatments and they don't have to die. If you then go to someone who is dying, these people do not have a treatment that is curable. Yeah, it might keep them alive another week or month of more suffering, but that's not a good treatment. Their dying process is already in place. That is, the dying has been going on for weeks, months, years in some cases, and they've got to die. So this, in fact, is not ordinary suicide. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a difficult semantic thing. In German, for instance, uh, don't ask me the word, but there's a totally different word for uh, self-dying of somebody who is dying from a medical illness versus ordinary suicide. And we don't make that distinction. And the reason we lost in the Supreme Court is that they didn't make that distinction either. They said, we don't, public doesn't like suicide, etc. So, this is not suicide. And in fact, uh, of interest, in the statute in Oregon, it specifically states that it's not suicide. Uh, the American Public Health Association and several psychological associations and, and other, the American Women's Medical Association, all have policy statements saying that aid in dying or patient-directed dying of somebody who is terminally ill is not suicide. So we, we will see this shift in terminology. For now, the opponents love the word because you can scare voters away by just calling it suicide. You can, you can get the support of, uh, of uh, people with different faiths who right. are adamantly against uh, any form of suicide by calling it suicide. Right. So it, it's word usage. And it has the connotation. You know, it has the bad connotation. So, Dr. Preston, where, you know, you've been working on this for a long time, and you've been trying to educate people. So what do you think is going to happen? I mean, with the various states, do you, I mean, and, and the technology is getting better and better, so we can keep people alive longer to suffer longer. Wh where are we going? Well, the, the easiest, I think, is to look forward 10, 15, 20 years. The baby boomers are getting to that point where they're watching their patients, their parents die. Uh, as you mentioned, medical technology is going to keep us alive longer and longer and longer till it's the, it will get to the point where it's not when you die, but, but how you die will right. determine when you die. And uh, I think we need to uh, 
design technology like artificial hearts that, that have some means of turning them off so that when somebody's had enough, they can just turn it off. Uh, but in the shorter run, uh, there it looks like there may be an initiative in the state of Washington that has a good chance of passing. Other states will look at this. And the, the biggest reason for thinking it will happen in other states is the experience in Oregon, where for 10 years now it's worked, I hesitate to say flawlessly, but I think that word is apt because there's not been one documented case of abuse. Uh, it's, if, if anything, people complain that it's too hard. Now, in the last, you said it's been there 10 years, so Lloyd only says we have a few minutes left, but I just had a question. So how many people have used this since it's passed and became an effective law? Uh, uh, about 316 in Oregon. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, it's a relatively... So that's only about, if you divide that by 10, that's only about 36 people a year, if you're talking... That's right, that's right. And uh, it's about a tenth of 1% of, of the people dying. So it's not a lot. And all the claims before they pass it, they will kill, they will target the minorities, they'll be doing it for financial reasons. None of that has happened. Right. None of it. So I would think that the families who went through this would be the best people to advocate for this. Well, they are. But guess what? Even they don't like, some do talk and they talk publicly, etc. But a lot... Don't tell anybody. They, right, because it's a private matter. I mean, yeah. that's what we're talking about, is giving them the privacy and dignity. That's right. And there's still enough people out there saying, oh, they did what? And, yeah. and that, they just and that they'd be talk. ostracized. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. Well, we've been, Lloyd is saying it's time for us to go. I can't believe it, that you, you gave so much great insight into this. And we appreciate your work, Dr. Dr. Preston, you uh, do you want to give your website? Oh yeah, it's www.tomprestonmd.com. Okay, and we and can get your book from that website or or at Amazon. Right, right on that website. Yep, that's where I got it. So I really appreciate it. it. Was very enlightening, and thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing. I know your heart is really in it, and thank you for writing this book. It was great. Thank you. Nice chatting with you. You too. We've been talking with Dr. Thomas. Preston, who is a medical doctor and patient, he is the author of Patient Directed Dying, a call for legal, legalized aid in dying for the terminally ill. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI Privacy Piracy. Thank you, Lloyd, and thank you, Joe, for joining us. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.